welcome to Crossroads, a podcast that explores the intersection of faith and Christian living. Crossroads is part of the media ministry at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. Get to know us by visiting us online at fapc.org. Hi, I'm Jamie Staley, Director of Christian Education at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. And this month, I am privileged to be joined by some of our members of our congregation, as well as a former pastor. Um, I'm really excited. When we started out the Crossroads podcast, uh, we started with speaking about race, um, looking at some storytelling uh, with some of our congregation members, uh, and then moving into some courageous conversations. And I'm excited to kind of be back where we started at the beginning. Uh, Tonight, I'm joined by our associate pastor, Reverend Werner Ramirez, um, our former youth elder, Salome Nufale, and our associate pastor emeritus, uh, Reverend Dr. Oscar McLeod. So thank you all for joining us tonight. I'm really excited to continue these conversations. We're happy to be here. And we are going to go ahead and uh, refer to Dr. McLeod this evening as Oscar. He's invited us uh, to be informal with him. And he did mention that many of you at home probably remember him as Oscar. So uh, we are excited to get to know you a little bit better. So thank you. So my first question for you, Oscar, when you were at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church, what were you, when were you there? um, And what are you doing now? I was at Fifth Avenue from November 1995 until June 30th, 2005. What I'm doing now is that I'm trying to be retired. (laughs) Yeah, I will soon complete my service as president of my homeowners association, which I've been for the past two years. And I do not intend to take on any kind of responsibility like that again. (laughs) Wonderful. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) We were just saying earlier, uh, as we discussed that when Oscar left Fifth Avenue, Salome was two years old. Um, So she she doesn't remember him as, as much as some of you may. Oscar, again, thank you so much for joining us in this conversation. It's my pleasure. Uh, um, and as you know, both Salome and I are part of the anti-racist response team at, at, um, at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Um, but we know that you've been involved with the Presbyterian Historical Society. How did you get involved with them? And can you tell us some of the history around racial justice and the PCUSA? Yes. Um, let me make a distinction at the beginning. Um, because some of what I will be referring to does not refer to the PCUSA, it refers to the former United Presbyterian Church. And I will try to make that distinction and most of what I will be talking about relates to the United Presbyterian Church. Um, But the way in which I got involved with the historical Presbyterian Historical Society really was accidental I've always had an interest in social justice and racial justice and civil rights from the time I actually was in in undergraduate school and college. And I think it resulted in part 
from my uh, background, having grown up on a plantation in rural Georgia and having attended Warren Wilson College in Asheville, North Carolina and graduated from Berea College in Kentucky. I had a sabbatical in 1981 of three months, uh, which was sort of unheard of for program staff of the, of the General Assembly Agency. And I decided I wanted to tape, do tape interviews of some of the, <clears throat> some of the former uh, leaders in the United Presbyterian Church about their involvement around racial justice and their advocacy for it. So I did about 15 or 20 tape interviews over a period of three months that took me from New York to uh, Illinois, Chicago to uh, New England, because that's where some of these retired people were. And I gave those tapes to the Historical Society. To my knowledge, the Historical Society had not done anything like that before. And I also did a similar group of, of interviews with a dozen of the oldest Presbyterian, African-American Presbyterian ministers and actually transcribed those, those interviews um, from the tapes because I thought at one time I might be inspired to write something. So uh, I had to have it transcribed, but I didn't write anything about them. I contributed those to the Historical Society as well. So that was the beginning of my interest with the Historical Society. Subsequently, I was asked to serve on the advisor committee for the Historical Society and have continued to be active in seeking to get the papers of uh, racial ethnic ministers, Presbyterian ministers contributed to the Historical Society. Um, just a quick kind of parenthesis there. Um, not speaking for any of the other racial ethnic groups, but for, for African-Americans, most of our ministers are not noted for writing. They do write some of their sermons, but they're not noted for writing. They're not writing books. You know, uh, they're struggling with the sermon sometimes, even on Saturday night, trying to finish it. Um, and most of them have not, don't have a sense that what they have been doing in, in their preaching and even the involvement in, in the community has any historical value. So I have been working with the Historical Society to get those persons to turn their papers over to the Historical Society. It's interesting, just, just this, today, I was corresponding with a niece of mine who is a member, well, the pastor of her church was the pastor of the, the church when I was in college and seminary. And she now, the daughter, is inquiring as to what should she do with his sermons. So I've had a new opportunity to, to her to say, okay, here's, I'll help you. Here's what, we're gonna get them to the Historical Society. No books, because he didn't write it. I knew John Ellis, he didn't write any books. Um, so that's been the nature of my involvement with the Historical Society. And frankly, until recent history, the Historical Society did not have any focus on 
collecting the papers of, of Hispanics, Latinos, Asians, Koreans, African Americans, et cetera. That's, that's a pretty recent development. That's a long answer to your question, but I'll try to be briefer in the future. <laughs> no, that's totally okay. It, it sounds like the work that you're trying to do is being able to tell the story of, of people in the Presbyterian church, uh, that, of minorities that have a story to tell and their story hasn't been recorded. Um, exactly. So that's, so thank you. Thank you for doing that. Um, Oscar, we were wondering where you've seen racial injustice throughout your career and where you've seen hope and parallelly, um, when has the PCUSA been a lonely place as an African-American pastor? And when have you found community around the PCUSA? Well, that's a lot. I'll try to write an essay on that question, but I'll also <laughs> try to respond to your question, um, Salome, and not be too, too long the answer. Um, the United Presbyterian Church has a long history of advocacy for racial justice. Even back in the 1940s, they developed a phrase, the de a desegregated church and a desegregated society. Long before the present of the, the, the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. Um, and and it, it, there's a whole, there's a wealth of statements by the Presbyterian Church advocating for racial justice. And so this has gone on for a long time, advocating for justice for Hispanics and, and some of the things that happened uh, early in the, the development of this country around land in the Southwest. Um, and the fact that um, land was taken from um, who I think then they were called Mexican-Americans, the same way in which the land was taken from Native Americans. It, it, it has also been an advocate for um, keeping true to the treaties with Native Americans. Um, the, um, it is said that there's never been a treaty with the Native Americans that the United States government didn't break and that the Native Americans record is only one. I don't remember what treaty that was, but there was only one treaty that they broke. But um, so there was a long history there. In the case of the other Presbyterian church prior to the reunion in 1983, known as the Presbyterian Church US, I commonly called the Southern Presbyterian Church. Um, it was not, the same did not have the same kind of advocacy or involvement. And I, I think part of that was because it was a church made up of people in the South, some of the most staunch segregationists, um, senators from Mississippi who were members of the Southern Presbyterian Church. So the church, I would say that it was cultural bound. And so it, it was very late coming to being an advocacy. Um, in, the, um, in the 60s and 70s, it began to change slowly. Um, and of course, the PCUS 
1983 has had a different kind of kind of record. Um, the question is sort of difficult in terms of where have I seen change. The, the United Presbyterian Church has responded, but did respond over the years to uh, some of the advocacies that was brought before it. Um, for example, the Black Manifesto, um, the, the articles in the plan for a union about institutions serving um, uh, marginalized groups. And also there's a policy uh, of the former United Presbyterian Church that land that was related to institutions like schools should be put at the disposal of the groups that it had been serving even when the schools did not no longer existed. That's been a, a sometime a broken record too. It hasn't been consistently followed. The, the other thing that I would say in, in response to this question is that I've not always been hopeful about the, the, the stance of the church, mm -hmm. uh, partly because, and I'll have something to say, I think later to one of the other questions about this, partly because I think the Christian churches find it difficult. We, we've talked, we used to talk about the Chinese, uh, they couldn't be Christians in China because they were too supportive of the Chinese government. And yet, in many ways, Christians in the United States are bound by the culture and also by the politics of the government. Mm. And I think the saddest thing I have to say, and I don't expect this to change in my lifetime, and I don't claim to be a, uh, an exception to what I'm going to say, but basically Christians who make up the Presbyterian church do not really practice what they preach. Wow. There was, there was a Baptist minister named Benjamin Mays, who was the president of Morehouse College for many years, who speaking to the World Council of Churches at its assembly in 1954 made this statement that there is no dichotomy between what we believe and what we do. We do what we believe. And I, I think if you put the Presbyterian Church to the test on that, um, it would fail just as we would as individual Christians. We know far more about the Bible and about what Jesus said that we ought to do as faithful followers, and we do a very small percentage of it. That's a rambling answer, Solomon, to your question, so you may want to press me if that, that doesn't meet your expectation. It's interesting hearing you say that, that hearing that the, that the church in, in America and the PC would say would, would fail. And, and in terms of wanting to, to redeem that and when thinking of a failure like that, the word that comes to mind for me is repentance. That's um, what? Repentance. repentance. Yeah. Um, and, and acknowledging some of the harm um, 
that that the church may may have done whether 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 it was purposefully or 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 ignorantly um and and sometimes that happens because because we don't we don't like to talk about race at all um and we're told that we just need to preach the gospel um yeah. and yeah. part and, of the gospel right right mm -hmm. part of yep. the gospel um and so so salome actually uh was asking me a lot of questions um in in earlier sessions about what did i learn in seminary what 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 was what did seminary say about racial justice and how was it taught? How was it experienced? Um, and I'm curious, how, how was that for you? How, how was racial justice taught or experienced in your theological education? Well, I think experienced would be uh, the more relevant part of my answer than taught. Um, I went to Union Theological Seminary in New York city and it did not have a single professional on its faculty when I was there. Now I went there in 1958 and graduated in 61. There were a few professors who had a strong commitment to racial justice Reinhold Niebuhr was one of those professors who was there at the time, last years of his life, his teaching. They did bring to Union as a visiting professor, an outstanding professor from the University of, of uh, Ghana at Lagos. They also brought as a visiting professor, Alan Payton. And it was Alan Payton being at Union that caused me to become an advocate for a free South Africa. Actually, I wrote a paper, I think for Reinhold Niebuhr um, about apartheid in South Africa in, 19, in, the, in the early 60s, late, late 50s. This is um, blowing my mind. What? <laughs> this is blowing my mind that hearing you say that well, you studied under Reinhold Niebuhr. <laughs> well, the... Um, I think probably in many ways, the most significant thing that I was taught, uh, starting in college, but also um, being reaffirmed in, in, in seminary, was that um, I learned something about um, the importance of how people treat each other. And I'd have to say that's probably the most important thing that I was taught at when I was in seminary. The second thing that I was taught, which I think must have been inspired by the kind of teaching that uh, a number of our professors did, Roger Shin, who was an ethicist a professor and Ryan Oliva, was that I was part of a small group of students at Union who in response to the student picketing of restaurants and the student sit-ins in the South in the early 60s. We organized something called the Student Interracial Ministry through which we placed, or sought to place, an African-American student in a predominantly white church and a white student in a predominantly 
African-American church. Hmm. Now, one of the problems that I, I have to comment on in terms of people understanding what I'm saying is that a focus on Hispanics, Latinos, who are just beginning to enter into the dialogue, the discussion of race and racial injustice in the late 50s and 60s. Asians were not even considered because Asians were viewed as being part of majority community. So the, the fact that most of my experience in terms of there was, I don't think there was an Asian professor at Union when I was there. There was one at Berea College, but there were no African-American faculty there either at that time or at Warren Wilson. So I think that the atmosphere of, of Union was, was the most important thing in terms of the kind of exposure it gave to me. And college did that too, um, to some degree. But, but focusing specifically on racial justice, no, that was not, was not part of the agenda. And um, so the students went out and did their thing when we organized the student interracial ministry. So student-led and, and student-motivated. Student oh. yeah. wow. I'd like to take us back to, to Fifth Avenue. You know, earlier you were talking about um, the PCUSA or Presbyterian churches and um, their failure at, um, at racial justice. And uh, one of our, 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 our archivist, archivist, uh, at Fifth Avenue um, found out uh, that some, and I, this may be already information that you know, but found that some of our founding members, uh, as well as John Romain, who was our first pastor, um, were slaveholders. And that throughout the Civil War and uh, even the Civil Rights era, the church was, was really silent around issues of race. Um, as as someone who has been a pastor at Fifth Avenue uh, and knowing that that culture, why why do you think that was? It was it was because of something I said earlier that we still have a long way to go as individuals and as congregations. Yeah, to practice what we preach to practice what we advocate. Hmm. Now, the other thing that we, we have to recognize is that north or south, east or west, the churches tend to reflect the culture. Most people don't think about the fact that New York State, at the early part of the 1800s, was a slave-holding, slave-owning state. Hmm. New York State abolished slavery in the way in which they got it through the legislature was they voted that slavery would end 10 years hence the passing of the legislature. Not that it would end January 1st of the following year, but 10 years later. Wow. It's not a surprise, it's not a surprise that yeah, that, that one of the pastors would have owned slaves. The founding 
signer of the Declaration of Independence. John Witherspoon was a slave owner, the first president of the College of New Jersey. So it was, it was, it was culture. It was part of the culture. Mm. And it was, let me put it this way. And the tragedy is um, the most recent disappointing, most recent 25 years ago, when the two churches that had separated in 1848, United Presbyterians will say it was over slavery. Southern Presbyterians will say it was states' rights, which for an African-American meant the advocacy for slavery. Because states' rights meant leave it to the states, let the states decide what to do about slavery. At the time of the reunion of the two churches, there was no acknowledgement. There was no acknowledgement and I would be happy to be proved wrong, but I think the, the researchers would have a difficult time. There was no acknowledgement of why they had separated in the first place. Mm. Wow. And the Presbyterians were the only mainline traditional denomination that did not, that separated around the time of the Civil War, but did not come back together until the 1980s. The Methodists, the Episcopalians, well, the Baptists always had their problems. Congregationalists, they're all reunited <laughs> shortly after the war ended. So it does not, it, it, shouldn't be, it shouldn't be surprising that we discover that um, leaders of the Fifth Avenue or a leader may have been slaveholder. I suspect, I don't have any evidence of this because there, there are some, some people who've said, uh, trying to think of a name and it leaves me, but it's, it's a black woman who became blind and wrote many, many uh, hymns. Um, I'll think of it when, when we're not talking, but that she worshiped at Fifth Avenue, but there's no evidence that any black person was invited into membership. And the churches where they were permitted to attend they sat in there, they were restricted to the balcony. Now the question is, what does that, for me, what does that kind of history say to us and say to a church in 2022? It really says to me that until we are able <clears throat> to devote ourselves to the least of these, we really are not fulfilling what we profess. 
I applaud Fifth Avenue for being the first church, Presbyterian church in New York City to diversify its staff, its ministerial staff. Um, I had some anxiety as to whether they would continue that. And I applaud them for it. Um, but it's not easy because one of the questions, and I suspect um, Warner has faced this from some of his friends and colleagues in the Hispanic community, the Latino community. Why are you at that quote white church when, <laughs> when Latino churches need your leadership? I may have heard that once or twice. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you have. Well, I, well, I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a I believe in crossing boundaries because I think that's what the Christian faith is all about, and it's it's a personal decision whether you cross the boundary or not. But I believe in crossing boundaries, and I'm not responsible if the person on the other side don't cross toward me. I'm only responsible in terms of whether I cross toward that other person. That's really wise, thank you. It, it's funny, I, I have heard that once or twice. And, and actually, believe it or not, it has never been from other Latinx people. It has been from more kind of progressive white people that oh, yes. have kind of <laughs> judged me for. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, so it, that's, in it, it, and, and some form, like I, that felt like a form of racism from, from for wanting to exist um and mm. and and also knowing that in presbyterian theology like we feel a call from god to go to a certain exactly. place um, yeah. so in a sense i felt like not only were they questioning me but they were questioning the call of god yeah um given that we've failed generally to practice what we preach as you said what would you say are some of your dreams surrounding racial justice that you have for the PCUSA and Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church moving forward well I, I have a dream um but I'm afraid I'm going to wake up and realize it was a nightmare instead. <laughs> mm. But that dream is that the Presbyterian Church and congregations like Fifth Avenue will be able to discover areas of ministry that are as radical or revolutionary or unusual, whatever term you wish to use, as were the forebearers, the early folk who founded the Presbyterian Church. They established hospitals. They established schools. Now, I ask this question in answer to your question about a dream. 
I wish there was a Presbyterian initiative to model what a secondary school could be like in the city of Atlanta, in the city of New York, in the city of Chicago. That's exactly what early Presbyterians did when they established Manal School out in Albuquerque, New Mexico, a Sheldon Jackson College in Sitka, Alaska, or Barbara Scotia, Warren Wilson, the high school that I attended, which is no longer in existence. That's exactly what they were doing. They were seeing a need that was not being met adequately by the state or by the county. And they entered that not to replace the public responsibility, but to, to demonstrate what could be done in a school or in a hospital or in a nursing home. And they did that all over the country. And they weren't, <clears throat> the thing that I admired about this part of the history, they weren't there to proselytize the people that they were there to serve. None of the schools were there for the purpose of proselytizing, making Presbyterians out of the young people who attended. So my dream is that somewhere, some, some congregation, some presbytery will be able, even at the risk, even at the risk of losing members, losing resources, will do something on the cutting edge in terms of meeting the needs of the marginalized. Oh. That's, that's my dream, Salome. And um, I also have, have a dream that, and I, this has been with me since my younger daughter was in high school. I lived in Teaneck, New Jersey, across the river from New York. City. And I realized that her experience in the public school was a more wholesome experience in terms of the diversity of humanity than it was in the local Presbyterian church. Wow. And I dream that the day will come when it be, will be the other way around. Hmm. I love that idea. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing your dreams for us. I, I, it doesn't sound like a nightmare to me. Um, it sounds like a really, <laughs> really, really big dream. It does. Well, it um, sounds like a nightmare to me because I'm afraid I might wake up and realize it's my time is finished and it's still that, that dream still hasn't come true. <laughs> well, I, I, I would hope that if 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 that were to come to fruition, there would be some people at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church that will uh, 
will want to jump right on board and, um, and participate in this dream. Yeah. Um, again, thank you for sharing. Um, what encouragement do you have specifically to Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church as we continue to have good but tough and uncomfortable conversations around race? One of the things that I would encourage Fifth Avenue to do is to move beyond a small group of people struggling with, with the issue of what is the meaning and evidence of racial justice in our midst. Huh. And in being able to engage a larger number of members of the congregation. You know, in, 19, in 2000, in 2022, it's a sin in our society and it's a sin in a place like New York or a place like Atlanta when a white person says, I don't know any African-Americans or I don't know any Latinos or I don't know any Asian-Americans, not to mention them saying, I don't have any friend mm. who is other than white. Now I understand part of the challenge because Men know men and women know women as their primary group. But I'm saying, I think it's a sin because we have opportunities that a lot of people in a lot of places don't have. Hmm. You know, the United States is blessed thanks to the grace of God not to necessarily having the best policies, but we are blessed to have a diversity of people who are part of this nation. Right. And we're not using them to the fullest extent. Hmm. So I think I commend Fifth Avenue for beginning the conversation. Uh, when I was at Fifth Avenue, I tried to do a little exposure by having, um, uh, during February, a, a worship service focusing on the musical contribution of African Americans. Yeah. Um, I'm getting ready at the church where we worship, where Kath is a member now to, to teach a course or class rather on the theological meaning of Negro spirituals, commonly wow. known earlier as slave songs. Um, because there's, there's so much of our history that, that, that's buried, just as you were talking about Romaine. There's so much of our history is buried, yeah. you know, and I believe that if we don't know our history, we will regretfully repeat it. Yeah. 
That's a good encouragement. Thank you. So maybe you could convince, since you're, you're Jamie, you're a Christian education, maybe yes. you can convince your committee of what to have a six week period where all of the classes in the Center for Christian Education would focus on learning about one, our history, two, our people, and three, the opportunities for witness. Mm -hmm. and, and I want to take the second one, our people. There are people who don't know the history of Asians in California, and not to mention the Japanese Americans who put in, they might as well call them concentration camps. You know, I, I, I grew up in the South and I find it, I'm able to live here because I don't, it's like taking, taking a bite of something and chewing it, but not swallowing it. I, I don't swallow much of the culture of the South, hmm. but um, I, I, just, I just don't think it, there's an excuse for Christians today not really knowing the challenge and the opportunity that affords us, that are that we can take advantage of because of the diversity of our population. Absolutely, you really you really piqued my interest with that class that you're teaching at your your church there. It, uh, that sounds awesome. Wish we could sit in. Yeah, I can. Come on down. All right. <laughs> I, I think Oscar just created your uh, curriculum for the spring or for the fall. I know, right? <laughs> awesome. Um, what would you say, what responsibility do Christians have, and particularly young Christians, to uphold racial justice in institutions of faith? Well, I commend you. And I hope you're able to challenge some of your friends and peers to join with you. The evidence, and I can say this about my generation and about the, the years that have passed, but <clears throat> there has been more substantive change in our society in the past two to three years as a result of the protests. And maybe, maybe it needs to be, everything needs to be named uh, George Floyd. And the young woman who took the video needs to be given an Oscar. Because those were not people, most of the folk who brought about that change were not the people who sit in the boardrooms 
or in the professional executive offices. They were young people. Mm -hmm. Preach. And I don't like to say our hope is in the next generation because that's like saying I had no hope in this generation, but I have had. But mm -hmm. there's an opportunity for, for, for you and for your generation and for youth like you. And one of them is to insist that your parents' generation hear what you have to say and hear what you're thinking and what, hear what you're feeling. Mm. Start it around the dinner table. Ask them why they never talk about Jim Crow, segregation, slavery, lynching, and the dishonesty of our own government in the way in which it has treated the Native Americans. There's been discussion, conversation going on about reparations. And even David Brooks wrote a column, I think a couple of years ago, in which he said, made a case for reparations. My problem with, I like David Brooks, most of his writing, but the majority population cannot propose the solution to the injustice done by oppressed people. The Japanese Americans who lost everything they had when they were uprooted and literally drove east away from the west coast, they were given a measly $20,000 per person. I think that was what it was. And it was assumed that that was reparations for what they had lost. I had a secretary whose parents, who was Japanese American. And I know from some very tender conversations with her, no amount of money given to her would restore that part of the dignity that had been destroyed. Mm, yeah. Oh, yeah. And also engage your own congregation, Salome. Challenge your own congregation to do something that is going to be lasting. Not to put a Band-Aid on a serious wound. And here's my last comment on this. Let not the one in power assume that he or she knows what is best for the person who needs to be helped up. Ask 
I don't believe any church should ever have a youth program that's designed by adults. And yet I know that's what happened in my generation. You're too smart uh -huh. to have somebody else thinking they know what's best for you. Uh -huh. You're speaking Werner's language right now. Huh? You're speaking Werner's language right now. <laughs> well, I can look in her face until she's she's too smart to have anybody, you know, brainwash her. But that's that's my response, uh, Salome, to your your question. If I had to do it over again, I'd do a lot more listening. Hmm. And a lot less speaking and implying that I got it. I know what is necessary. Wow. Wow, that's powerful. Um Salome, I I I don't know if you have a few thoughts to say. Um but I, I am so proud of, of the youth group at, at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church, specifically um, with Salome and, and a few other students who, um, who want to see change um, in their communities, change at the, at, um, within Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. And, and you're right. It, it feels like, I don't know if I'm old now. I, I, think, I, I think I am. Yes, um, but <laughs> um, I'm. I used to think I was the. I, I used to think I was Samuel, but I, I'm now Eli, and and these young people are hearing the call from God, yeah. and we 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 must we must now be the Elis that that listen to the young prophet Samuel, um, and Salome, you and your people are, are Samuel. You and your young people are Samuel. So. Um, I, I hope that us as a, as older people are, are willing to listen to you. And you have, you have, and it's worth keep progressing. Um, it's definitely something that all generations have to collaborate on in order to have something that lasts. As we get ready to wrap up, um, does anyone have any final thoughts? Uh, this has been a really great conversation, a lot of a lot of depth, a lot of different ideas. Does anybody have anything final they'd like to add before we close? I just want to say thank you again, Oscar. It's been a it's been a real pleasure to to share this hour with you and. And for you to take time um, off your 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 busy schedule, I know you're trying to stay retired, um, but <laughs> I, I I thank you for taking the time to 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 have these good conversations with us. Well, Absolutely. you know, this technology is challenging sometimes for someone my age, but it's also a gift from God because without this technology. Um, I wouldn't have been able to last year enjoy worshiping with Fifth Avenue. Mm. Um, actually, for most of the past year, two years. Um, awesome. And also, this kind of thing um, would not be possible. 
Um, so I think that new times teach new duties and we must discover what those are. And um, one of my hopes, believe it or not, is that there are young people like you, Salome, who will not sit quiet. Be, read the story of Hannah, because sometimes you may need to get up and walk away from the table or walk out of the room and say, I've had enough of that. I'm going to go some other place to listen. Hmm. No. And I want to commend you, Warner and Jamie, for uh, the work that you're doing uh, and the work that you've already done and will continue to do. God's blessings on you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Oscar. And again, thank you for joining us. Um, and thank you, Werner and Salome, for uh, and the anti-racism response team for putting this together. I think people are going to be really excited, first of all, to hear Oscar's voice again um, and mm -hmm. to, to be able to be connected to him again. And also just to hear this, this great conversation um, with such, such depth, as I was saying before. Um, and I, I hope people at home who are listening, um, who are interested, uh, are able to, to join us for some more things. I know the anti-racism response team for Fifth Avenue has uh, a few more things coming out this winter um, that you can check out aside from this podcast. Uh, there will be some other things to be involved in. So please do make sure you're checking our website uh, for more information. So thank you all again for joining us and good Thank night. you. Thank you for listening to Crossroads. Managing Editor, Jamie Staley. And Editors, Vashina Brisbane, Kelly Pacayo, and Emily Dombroff.